What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this episode, we're interviewing Spencer Averick. Now, Spencer just finished working on When They See Us, which is the Netflix series about the Central Park Five boys, and it's such an amazing series. You have to check it out. We get into the acting as well as the tone building in this particular episode, and I think what Spencer has to say is very interesting. Here's my interview with Spencer Averick about When They See Us. Well, I guess to start off, I'd love to know, because you've worked with Ava DuVernay before, and one of the things that always fascinates me is the relationship between editors and directors. And I was wondering if you could discuss your relationship or tell us how you guys work together to mold these stories. Yeah, I think early on in our relationship, we found that we have the same sensibilities. We found that we like the same movies, you know, tend to like the smaller indie character-driven type of films. We like similar music. We have similar political views. Um, Ava's actually hilarious. She has a great sense of humor and we laugh a lot. So we're friends. We have a lot in common. You know, earlier we found that when we were in the, in the edit suite, if we both liked something, then we knew that it was in. And a lot of the times we agreed and both liked the same thing. So it was a good mix early on. And, you know, after that, it was just natural. Um, she trusted me. And that's one of the things that carried over to each project. You know, during production, she kind of keeps her head down and, you know, she doesn't really screen dailies or anything because she's so busy. So she has that trust that um, she knows what I'm putting together. The takes that I choose will be in line with uh, how she feels. So then when we get in there, we just have fun with it. And it's usually a really great experience. And we're just two filmmaking friends putting a movie together. Now, Gerald Jerome, who played Corey Wise in episode four, gives such a powerful and gut-wrenching performance. As I was saying before you got on the phone, my wife cried through all the episodes. Oh, wow. Uh, and particularly through this one. And, you know, when I was re-watching this week, she's like, you can't tell me what you're watching because she doesn't want to cry again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I'm wondering, what were the rushes and dailies like, and how did you work with those to sort of, um, I don't want to say get the performance, but help reveal the performance, because it's there, it's in the footage. So what were the dailies like, and how did you work with them? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a different type of episode, because this actor, Jarrell, he's not really working with other actors. You know, usually actors are sort of feeding off of each other. He's in isolation. Even when he's working with other actors, he's sort of in this sort of mental isolation. So it's all contained within this one person, this whole performance. And so, yeah, you're right. There's no credit to be taken on my end for this. He came in fully immersed in this person, Corey Wise. So, you know, sometimes you're, you're editing and you're sort of, the, the performances have different nuances or some takes are better than others. He came in and the whole thing was just sort of Corey Wise. So there was no better take or worse take. So yeah, you're right. It was more about finding the nuances to put together this evolution of this boy who, you know, everything happened so fast for this kid as far as the trial and, you know, being thrown in jail, going to Rikers adult prison as a 16 year old. So he didn't know what the hell was going on. And he still thought that he would get out of this thing because the truth is on his side. You know, he's innocent. So he, he got in there and he would say, no, no, I'm innocent. This isn't right. And so it was this slow evolution of 
him realizing that this is permanent and he's not going to get out of there and and it doesn't matter if he's innocent and so it's a slow descent into madness basically and and then eventually acceptance of the situation you know and um learning to cope with prison life and learning how to stay alive in prison and so it's this little little nuances and little tweaks with editing to his performance that sort of just help the audience take you along for this horrible ride that he went on well and you can see that like i remember watching where he, he arrives at rikers and is going through the simon says game and it's just that whole scene from him getting his photos taken to there's it has so many different levels of innocence confusion fear all these things in his face that he's just delivering and yet there's this weird sort of scary tone to that whole scene and i'm wondering how did you tackle that that moment, even though it's a, such a small scene, it's such a powerful one. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's an underlying uneasiness to that, you know. And in uh, Corey, Jarrell was the only actor in this whole thing who didn't play the older version of himself. And so, you know, you really have to give it to him because when, when he was playing in episode four, when he was playing, you know, the 16-year-old boy who went into Rikers, there was a real innocence on his face. And just a naive boy who was just entering prison. So there's that face and that performance contrast with the surroundings in prison and the prison guard and the reality of, you know, what this is. Give me your old clothes. Here are your new ones. I think, you know, as an audience member, you sort of know what's happening, but on his face reads, but I'm innocent and I'm just a boy. And so it's terrifying because, you know, that performance, he lets you in and you, you're you on the journey with him. So between his performance and the subtle uneasiness of the score, I think, I think it's palpable. The other thing is sort of the, there's these transitions, I guess you could say. So like him going from Rikers to Attica and, you know, there's different transitions between the, each of the prisons. So I was wondering what was the the thought process behind it? Cause it seems like Rikers to Attica is sort of this surreal sort of montage, whereas Attica to Wendy is harsh and just sort of like a straight cut. So why the differences between the different scenes? Yeah, I think, I think it was, um, since he was innocent, he thought he was going to be getting out of this thing. Truth was on his side. But the reality was, um, and he had, you know, when he went to Rikers, that's in New York, and his mom was in the Bronx. They had family somewhat close. So he still feels like he's close to home. And slowly, he's realizing that there are prison transfers. And he's slowly moving further away from the only person that is sort of on his side, his mom, and slowly moving away from his home and slowly moving away from the idea of getting out of prison, um, that we just wanted to, you know, the first sort of transition was like, what, you know, oh my God, I have to move. Now I'm 200 miles for, I can't remember the exact number, but now I'm much further from the Bronx than I was before. And oh my God. And then the transition to the third prison, it's just more of a dark kind of reality hit. You know, it's like, here I am. It just keeps getting further and further. And um, that's sort of the moment on his face where he almost, you know, he doesn't even need makeup. You know, they put some makeup on to make him look older as he aged, but he turns from a boy to a hardened, you know, man inside a prison, you know, you can see it in his eyes. So yeah, more so it was just that distance from home, showing him just getting further and further and sort of making it feel impossible for him to leave these prisons and yeah, make it a little bit more harsh as we got further. 
it's almost like you guys were taking away our hope as we were watching this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. It's funny. Everyone knows. I mean, not everyone, but most people know, you know, that, that he's going to be in prison. But there's a, you're, you're holding out because you know he's, he's innocent. He's just a boy. Yeah, it's, it's rough. It's a rough watch. Well, in the scene with his mother, you mentioned, you know, his mother comes and visits him initially at Rikers. And there was something really interesting in that scene in the way you edited it was um, you allowed the actor's delivery or performance, I guess, to be the star. And so I was wondering how you determined when to allow shots to sort of linger more on the actors uh, and when to cut away. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I loved editing that scene. You know, there's three different angles. It's not anything too dynamic. But I love editing those kind of scenes because there's so much subtext. There's so much that he wants to tell her and there's so much that she wants to tell him. But, you know, family dynamics can be tricky, obviously. And so they're not just saying it. Um, She's concerned for his safety. And deep down, she knows that he's not safe, but he's sort of hiding that fact from her because he doesn't want her to worry. And so it's more about the eyes in the the quiet moments than the actual words. And so, you know, when his mom says, how are you doing in here? And then she looks at him, you know, if you just cut right after she says the line, then you're only getting the line. But if you cut three seconds after or whatever, then you see exactly what she means and exactly what she already knows. She knows, she knows, but it's hard for her to face that, you know, in that moment, or she's just trying to pretend like, you know, everything's going to be okay. So, There were so many moments in there that as an editor, you just love that footage because there's so many moments that don't need words to be said. And so did you play with it a lot? Like, did you, I guess, allow it to sit on him more because we're sort of with him so much. But in the scene when like the final version that I saw, it's almost this, I don't want to say even, but this nice sort of like we're seeing, like you said, these subtexts between the two of them, like she's worried, but she can't say anything. And, you know, he's terrified, but he can't say anything. Yeah. Yeah, definitely played on him more in that scene because he had already been through so much. You know, he had gotten beat up a few times, you know, probably almost beaten to death. And, you know, if my mom came to me and I was in prison, I'd be like, Mom, get me out of here. I just got beat up, you know, but he, he couldn't tell her that. So, you know, such a great actor. And then you're sitting there watching his eyes. And as an audience member, you just sort of witness what he went through and you could stare at him the whole time. You know, you, you could honestly let the take just run on him and you, you get exactly what that seems about. But yeah, that was about him holding that in, protecting his mom and for whatever reason, too much pride or didn't want to worry his mom just decided to keep everything behind his eyes. Now, I do have one question that's a little off topic. There was one thing in the series that sort of was hanging over the series as I was watching it. And that is the fact that Donald Trump sort of aggressively went after these kids in the 80s. And I know that that's not a part of the series because the focus was the kids. But was there discussion of that in the editing room or because he, now he's president. And so it's kind of uh, unnerving almost. Yeah, you know, he's got that power. And, you know, these are the kind of things he wasn't a politician back then, but these are the kind of things politicians do. You know, they use these incidents and um, racial issues to get votes. It's been happening for a long time, obviously. You know, we definitely had conversations, but it was clear early what Ava wanted. She didn't want to, you know, put too much of them in there. We didn't want to make it about we're bashing Trump because he's the president now. We definitely didn't want to go too far. And we didn't 
we didn't want him in the show that much, honestly, to tell you the truth. So I think we just kept him as the kind of character that he was and, you know, put out there that he sort of basically put a bounty on these kids' heads. And that sort of could speak for itself. But yeah, there was definitely a conscious decision, understanding that line too much or not enough and sort of just barely put him in there. Now, to jump back to what we were sort of talking about before, the other section that sort of really stands out for me is the um, sort of transition. It, it happens around when his brother dies and we have the heir and it sort of becomes this, he's sort of daydreaming almost and stuck in these other worlds. And it's a very tricky thing because it could come off hokey, but it comes off so well in this. So I'm wondering how you tackled those sort of moments where he's talking to other people and things in his prison. Well, I'm glad you said that because that's what we wanted. We wanted it to feel, well, we didn't want it to feel hokey, but we wanted it to feel like you're not really sure if it's real or not because, you know, and this is coming straight from Corey, the real Corey. You know, these are things that he actually went through in his mind. You know, a little bit of the backstory here is that he, in order to stay alive as a quote unquote rapist in prison, he went into solitary confinement or else he would have been dead for sure. So, you can only imagine being in solitary confinement. You know, you got you and you got your mind and that's it. And, you know, he had all of these family issues, these unresolved issues with his brother who turned into his sister and his mom who had a lot of issues with that sister, you know, which he was going through. So there's some real heavy family issues going on unresolved that he only had time to think about. So he created these dialogue in his head about how to come to these resolutions with his mom, how to accept her apology within his own head and sort of live out these scenes that he wished would have happened in real life. And also, you know, there's scenes with uh, a prison guard who treats him with so much kindness. And now that, that can be perceived a few different ways, but, you know, basically what that is, is there were prison guards, obviously, but nobody really treated him with that much kindness. It was something that he wanted and that he manifested in his own head to get through the day. So a lot of this was created by him in his own head that he lived out. He literally lived this out in solitary confinement. Some of it was real, some of it wasn't. I'm sure you kind of go crazy in there. So it's a mixture of both. So we wanted to sort of tell that line and, and have the audience kind of, you know, obviously, you know, that when you see someone in the cell with them, they're not real, but what was real, what wasn't. And, you know, just diving into the thought process of someone who's living in solitary confinement, you know, in their own head. Now, I have one last question that I'd like to ask everyone I interview. It's a little more lighthearted since we've had, <laughs> we're dealing with such a heavy subject matter. What's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Ooh, guilty pleasure film. I would say that I'm a kid from the 80s, so and, and you know I got to be into films because of my love of films, and you know I think I would say like TV 1980s films in general. I just love them, and I think there's um there I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about bad 80s movies that are so good, whereas bad movies now aren't good. I I don't know what like it's that cheesiness factor. You know I'm talking about weird science and labyrinth and adventures and babysitting and all those movies i just love those movies and maybe it's because it, they make me nostalgic give me adventures and babysitting right now and uh, i'll watch it all day amazing well thank you so much for letting me interview thank you gordon i appreciate it all right you have a good day you too bye so that was my interview with Spencer Abrick. I'd like to thank Spencer for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Niraj Patel for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.